Hello and welcome listeners to Press On, where we discuss solutions to build a sustainable future and a better world. Today I am joined by Dr. Megan Corrado, and I will yield the floor to Dr. Megan Corrado. Hi, my name is Megan. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I'm a doctor of social work. I'm also the creator of the Stories Trauma Narrative Intervention, and I also am myself a trauma survivor. So the work that I do is really informed um, by trauma theory. It's also informed by the interactions that I have with clients who are mostly urban youth of color. And it also is informed by um, our understanding of how trauma impacts people. So the Stories Trauma Narrative Intervention seeks to support trauma survivors as they create voice and honor their narratives. There are several things about stories that makes it different from other interventions. One of those things is that stories um, takes a strengths-based approach. I'm a social worker. I have my bachelor's, my master's, my doctorate, all in social work. And one of our primary principles is a strengths-based approach. Um, unfortunately, sometimes this is not uh, integrated into trauma practices. Sometimes we forget to look for people's sources of strength and resilience um, because we're looking for the story of the trauma. So my stories intervention seeks to support people as they look not only at their past sources of pain and their trauma, but also at their sources of strength and resilience and all the things that help them get back up again when different experiences from life has knocked them down. That's truly amazing. Um, as a trauma survivor myself, it's important. I was fortunate to have people around me who boosted me up and reminded me of my strengths. Um, as few as there may have been at times. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to bring that to more people is such a necessary thing. Um, in addition to the stories, um, what else do you do? I know that you teach. Mm -hmm. So I just want to, you know, bring light to that as well. Sure. So I also um, teach at Bryn Mawr College as a full-time faculty member there. I've been there for about a year now. I actually graduated from Bryn Mawr. Um, that's where I earned my master's degree. So it's really exciting to come full circle, um, to be there as a student initially, and now to be there as a faculty member. I've taught foundation practice. That's for first year students who are trying to learn the basics of uh, what understanding what social work is, understanding the code of ethics, interviewing practices, trauma-informed approaches. I've taught family therapy, and I'm also teaching a class that I just developed. Um, it's, it's called a special topic, so it's basically a temporary elective, but it's called Social Work, Trauma, and the Arts. So that class has been very exciting. We're four, we're four classes in, and we start off understanding trauma theory. What are, um, how do we define trauma? What does it mean to be trauma informed? What are symptoms that people experience as a result of trauma? And then once um, we've gone through trauma theory, we're then talking about the concept of creativity and destruction, how that connects to trauma survivors, um, especially trauma survivors seeking to process what happened to them within an artistic context. And then we're looking at different specific arts-based strategies to support trauma survivors within social work settings. So this is my first time teaching it. I just developed it and it has been very exciting thus far. Can you give us a brief rundown about the three questions that you said about trauma theory? What is trauma? Why is it important to have trauma-informed principles and practices? And then uh, what are the effects? Whew. Okay. 
So first, defining trauma could be its own um, series of podcasts in and of itself. Absolutely. Because so many different theorists have different definitions of what trauma is. Some um, have very strict definitions and others um, have, a, have more fluid definitions. What I would say is that trauma, um, traumatic experiences, they overwhelm. Um, they overwhelm your senses. They make you feel afraid and overwhelmed and you have difficulty processing and integrating what has happened. And then it also um, traumas also change the way that you view yourself, other people and the world around you. So that's the definition that I would give. But there are many definitions in the literature about what trauma is. Fortunately, we will be getting to a lot of them. Hopefully, over the course of this podcast, we'll have a number of people who speak, and everybody's got a different definition. But mm -hmm. so, in terms of, so there are trauma perpetrators, there are trauma survivors. Uh, do we use the word victim? Yeah. In, so there are victims, survivors, and then as I'll, I'll call myself a trauma bystander at times, mm -hmm. where there's something that I could do, but. How do I intervene? What can I do? I'm not a licensed clinical social worker. I'm not a therapist. I'm a lay person that wants to do good for another person who's hurting. I, I think, first of all, even um, having the motivation and the awareness um, that trauma exists and that trauma is impacting people. Something that I tell the social workers that I work with, um, most of them are training to be therapists. I tell them that... Um, it's really important for us to remember that therapists are not the only people that can support trauma survivors in healing. Sometimes we get territorial in our disciplines, whether that's social work, whether that's psychology, whether it's public health, and we think that we have the magic key to helping uh, trauma survivors heal. Although each of our disciplines and our professions have specific skills, it's important for us to remember that this, this isn't about whose whose territory trauma-informed practice is. This is about um, how can each of us use what we bring to the table to support trauma survivors. So let's say you're not a clinician. Let's say that you're, um, you volunteer at a community organization or you're an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent. There are all different types of things that you can do even if you're not a clinician, even if you're not a professional helper. Um, you can do things like creating safety for people um, and, and thinking about safety in all its components. So physical safety, emotional safety, psychological safety, moral safety. Um, we also have the opportunity to provide uh, trauma survivors with reparative experiences. So just having a healthy relationship with a trauma survivor, one in which the person is not in danger and is not um, concerned about you know whether, whether or not another trauma is going to happen, that opens up a new pathway for that individual to see, you know what, not every experience with an individual is traumatic. So there are a lot of different things that people who are not therapists can do. There are people who are working in after school programs, who are physicians, who are um, teachers, who are doing all different things to support trauma survivors. And it, it doesn't have to do with your degree necessarily. Um, it has to do with your, your motivation to understand the experiences of trauma survivors and helping them have healthy experiences. So you, you spoke to the community center perspective and so to bring my full-time job into it because we're actually doing a program where we are, it, it, so it's called LOVE. It's, I, was, I wanted to use the acronym LOVE and so I built it around it.
but it's lowering overdose and violence epidemics. And it's an infusion of trauma-informed care into our before and after school, as well as our summer camp for children. And then we have workforce development and making sure that we treat all of those youth. The, the large majority of our uh, clients live below the poverty line um, single parent household, a lot of, again, not that we use an A score as the indicator that something's going to be wrong, but there's adversity that they face, unlike where I grew up. Um, and then we have emergency services. We have a food cupboard, basic needs provision, stuff like that. Um, I promise that we'll get on to other topics outside of that. But for me, as the director of development at Northlight, when I write grants, I'm supposed to tell people what is important about the programs. And so if you could help me understand better what the importance of the programs that we're trying to do in the community center level, serving inner city youth and families, um, you know, what does that mean coming at it through a trauma-informed lens or working toward that? It's funny, it's funny that you ask this question because this is kind of the question right now. What does it mean to be trauma-informed? Um, there's a lot of places that are saying that they're trauma-informed that have no idea um, what it means to be trauma-informed, that don't understand trauma. Um, but there are some basic principles that support us in understanding what it means to be trauma-informed. One of those is safety, understanding the importance of safety, safety in, in all of its um, dimensions. Another thing is allowing people to have opportunities for choice and control. So actively involving um, the clients in whatever activities you're doing and the planning of activities um, so that so that interventions and support are not things that are imposed on people, but that they are co-collaborated with the people um, who are who are actually benefiting from them. Um, also, just being dependable and trustworthiness um, sometimes in in. Dr. Sandy Bloom talks about this all the time, um, the concept of sanctuary trauma. Sometimes people are coming to us for help and support, and really what they find is a really disorganized organization um, that they can't trust, that's unpredictable, and it mirrors the same exact trauma that people are trying to escape. Um, so I think thinking about those principles is, is really important as well. Absolutely. Uh Thank you. Um, so we'll get to the questions that we had outlined. Uh, but so of all of your work, what's the best part about what you do? So there's a few things. Um, one of the things is being able to be a witness to the narratives of strength and resilience that trauma survivors display. So as a clinician, I've been a clinician for 10 years now, and I've heard a lot of stories. And uh, a lot of the clients that I worked with are youth who people have written off, youth who people say you will never get anything out of them. Um, they're just a criminal. They're just a perpetrator. They're just um, a, a victim. And being able to see their strength and resilience is one of the most rewarding things that I have seen. So youth who people never thought would graduate from high school, people thought would never live to the age of 18, 21, they have within their narratives these these stories of things that have helped them to keep going. And that's something that never ceases to amaze me. Um, another 
Another thing that I really enjoy about the work that I'm doing as it relates to stories is being able to rethink how we package trauma-informed interventions. So sometimes when we hear trauma-informed, it can feel really intimidating. There's a lot of big words. There's a lot of thick books. There's a lot of theoretical writing. And part of what I've done with stories is say, yes, the theoretical information is really important, but how can we translate it in a way that's engaging, that's interesting, um, and thinking through how can we make uh, trauma treatment something that people look forward to and are excited by instead of something that people dread and avoid and that makes them feel uncomfortable. Um, there will be discomfort, but, but I've really enjoyed being able to think through how can I use graphic design to engage trauma survivors and photographs so that people can connect with the concepts that are being presented? How can I use plain language to explain concepts so that language is not being used as, as a tool of oppression? Um, but we're using simple language that people can, people of any uh, educational background can relate to and connect with so that we're not using this language as something to be held over someone's head um, or to, uh, I'm going to get myself in trouble now, or some, some of us professionally like using fancy language because it also creates um, a need for our services and it, it makes people think we're really fancy and sophisticated, but then what's the use if people don't know what we're saying? And when we're working with trauma survivors, they need us to know they need, they need to know what we're saying. Um, another thing that's really exciting to me is being able to bring excitement to the healing process. So I've heard feedback from clinicians who've been implementing um, the Stories Trauma Narrative Intervention. Up to this point, I've trained over 2,000 individuals, clinicians, community leaders in it in the past three and a half years. And something that is really exciting to me is the enthusiasm that clients are talking about um, the narrative process. So usually when we talk about trauma, we think about fragmentation, we think about dissociation, we think about pain and flashbacks, but to hear that there are other ways of supporting trauma survivors that can be exciting and empowering um, really, really, really energizes me. What is the importance of, and you started to touch on it with the fragmented parts and What's the importance of creating a cohesive narrative for someone who whose narrative may have recently or long ago been t broken and really disrupted? So part of how trauma impacts people is that um, it's actually difficult for the brain to absorb traumatic memories because your fight or flight response is triggered during a traumatic event. Like you're afraid, um, you're, you're terrified, something has happened that's causing you to be in danger. The part of the brain that's involved with being able to organize and make sense of what happened, there's no activity going on there when somebody is experiencing a trauma. So as a result, trauma survivors often have these memories that the brain doesn't quite have a place for. Um, and the narrative process is really helpful in supporting people in um, integrating, organizing, and making meaning of their experiences. So the way that um, I support people in telling their narratives is I meet them where they are. So where trauma survivors start off is in a place of fragmentation. Their fight or flight re response was triggered when they experienced the trauma. 
they weren't actually able to process what happened because their primary response to the trauma is, how do I get out of here? How do I survive? So you have these memories that don't really have a place, don't really have a context, and the person can't really make meaning meaning um, of it. And how can you have mastery or control over something that you can't even quite put your finger on because it's it's fragmented? So um, in the narrative process, I start off by meeting the client where they are in that fragmentation. So um, they start off by naming different events, positive and negative, that they've been through. It doesn't have to be in order. Um, and it's not expected that the person has a complete understanding of their narrative. Um, but they're starting off by naming events. And then progressively, they go through the process of organizing the events and then of connecting what happened with what they thought and how they felt about what happened. Then they um, reorganize their narrative, put it all together, review it. And then they look at where do I want to go from here? What is my future vision? In light of all the things that I've experienced, where do I want to go from here? And it's really helpful in supporting trauma survivors because they start off in this place of chaos, emotional chaos, psychological chaos, um, sometimes physical chaos, and supporting them in progressively organizing what happened and then saying, where do I want to go from here? That's, yeah, I mean... Very well said. So there's a few places that I want to go. If we can take a step back to the beginning of what you were saying, you were talking about the actual brain process. So for our listeners, can we break down what's going on in the brain? So as I understand it, we're talking about the deeper part of the brain. The brain as we age builds out and that's the more cognitive abilities within the brain. So the outside part of the brain is literally shutting off. So... And you're going to get me because I'm not a neuroscientist, but I do We're understand the best. basics. Okay. So there are different parts of the brain. There's the prefrontal cortex or the neocortex. And that's the part of the brain that's involved in decision making, weighing pros and cons, problem solving, making meaning. It's the part that we refer to when we're talking about what we're thinking about. Then there's another part of the brain called the limbic system. And the limbic system is the brain's emotional center. So um, and it, the limbic system operates unconsciously. So um, we don't even know what decisions the limbic system is making for us, but its job is to protect us, to um, survey our environment and say, you know what, you're in danger. This is the response that you should, um, this is the direction you should go. Or, no, you're safe, it's okay. So when someone is experiencing a trauma, the limbic system is propelling the person into fight or flight mode. And, Unconsciously. Right. The brain... It's not like the person's trying to be, they're like, let's be this way. It's like right. the brain's so overwhelmed that it's kicked out. Right. Okay. And um, the incredible part about, about this is that your brain is protecting you or seeking to protect you and you don't even know that it's happening. Um, so when a trauma is happening, the fight or flight part is actually active because the person is in danger or they're in an unsafe situation. When the limbic system is triggered in a trauma, the prefrontal cortex is not actually able to say, okay, what's happening to me? What does this mean? Um, so the person is, it has difficulty connecting the emotions and the fight or flight response with let me make meaning out of this. To be honest, um, during a trauma, 
it, it would actually be a luxury for somebody to be able to take a moment to say, what is happening to me here? Like the brain doesn't have time for that um, because the limbic system is activated and it's trying to make sure that the person is safe and they're able to um, successfully navigate through a dangerous situation. So as we continue, so what your story is doing or the story's narrative is taking the people from that limbic system or the limbic part of the brain, the, what do they call it? The reptilian brain? Is mm -hmm. that, okay. Again, I'm not a neuroscientist either. It's so funny that you like, you have master's, bachelor's, PhD, and you still like are- It's complicated. You're, you're so humble and I'm, I just go out there and I'm just trying to throw <laughs> as many facts into the wind as possible. I have a lot to learn. Uh, but as we build out the story's narrative, we're taking people, or you are taking people from the limbic system and over time, gradually moving them out toward the prefrontal cortex and all, is, is that kind of, again, trying to understand what's actually going on in the brain over time, is that kind of what the process is? Yes, yeah, somewhat. However, so um, it's important to remember that not every narrative is verbal though. So there's also nonverbal processing that can happen as a result of telling your narrative, especially if you tell your narrative in a different format. How else can someone tell a narrative? I, I, you know, the creative outlets, I mean, go over how people can heal through different creative outlets. Sure. So sometimes the way that we heal is through verbal methods, which would engage the prefrontal cortex. Um, so there's writing. There's, so there's poetry, there is, there's short stories, there's rap, there's instrumental music, there's singing, there's drama, there's theater, there's dance, there's collage, mosaic, um, all these different methods that can support people in telling their narratives. The other thing that's really important is that trauma survivors have verbal and nonverbal ways of expressing what happened to them. Cause sometimes we don't have the words to express what it is that happened to us. Right. Um, but it's important for us to process what happened, but how do you process what happened if you don't have the words? And that's where the arts fit in and supporting people. And then toward the end, you talked about a great piece of it, which is seeing the growth. Um, one of the most hopeful parts, one of the, things that brings me the most hope in life is the concept of post-traumatic growth. And so if you can just speak a little bit to what you've seen in your work, like what that actually looks like, what is it that the narratives become that the kids or adults grow into through their trauma, through their story? I have seen clients whose narrative controlled them. Um, the narratives of fear and terror and boundary violations and harm, um, they've, they started off in a place where these things ruled and controlled their lives. And I have seen them through the narrative process take ownership and control over their own narrative. Um, I've seen kids who people never thought that they would amount to anything, who are able to process their narrative and reach out to the supports that they have and attend community college, find a stable job, have, have a healthier relationship. Um, and it, it's really funny because in this world of evidence-based practice and the medical model, 
we really elevate numbers and statistics when we talk about post-traumatic growth and when we talk about, you know, any symptoms, really. And what I found is that a lot of the growth that I've seen in my clients can't be measured in a structured tool, but um, seeing somebody's narrative formation progress. Like they started off really scattered and then they ended being cohesive and organized and being able to make some sense of things. Um, I've seen clients who started off as feeling really hopeless about their ability to grow and progress, who then gotten to the point where they want to inspire other people um, and are helping kids in their neighborhood to tell their narratives too. So those are things that I have seen. Um, I... I have a I have almost a lifetime of stories of how trauma has impacted people, but I also have a lifetime of stories of how trauma, um, how people have been able to get back up again despite trauma, and they're able to tap into their inner strengths and keep moving forward. As someone who you you opened up by saying that you've experienced trauma in your past and you have now gone through more school than I can fathom to better or to certainly participate you know a lot about trauma you've had personal experience seeing others if someone is listening right now who is feeling in that broken place like i felt so alone you have a very soothing voice i would just like to open the floor for you to tell them something that you're not alone that sometimes things are broken, sometimes life is unresolved, sometimes our stories are messy, sometimes there's no answer for the difficult things that we have been through, but, but each and every one of us has strengths. You have strength, and you can keep going despite the things that you've experienced, and even if things are messy and confusing, you can do it, and you're stronger than you think you are. That's beautiful. I believe that we are all stronger than I think we are, um, than we all think we are. And trying to move toward the rest of our conversation, um, one of the questions that you didn't tell me to cross off is, uh, if you could reimagine the American dream. Let me clarify, only asked to cross off one question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's not like I had like a... 1400 question list it was it was only 12 questions no 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 it was was totally reasonable um so yes in in writing that question i think that we have a very selfish idea of the american dream it's very individualistic Hmm. um and you've touched on how we need to grow together how people from all systems need to come together and so if we can reimagine the american dream we can drop the american part and just say the dream what would that look like? Hmm. Should have crossed that one out. <laughs> <laughs> Too late? No. Um. So first of all, I don't know what the American dream is for the average person. I don't know what the American dream is for youth of color, for people who've experienced trauma. Um, I think the American dream is an illusion. And it's something that many of our communities chase after. But there are so many systemic barriers that it was never even a possibility for them to achieve this 
illusory lifestyle, um, I would say that if I were to reimagine the American dream, it would mean it would mean that everybody would have the ability to tap into their strengths to achieve their goals, not just an elite few. Um, I think that it would mean that people had a healthy environment to find themselves, to learn, to grow. There are so many people who don't have a chance from the very moment, from even from the moment of birth to the moment that they die. They live in conditions that make it extremely difficult, if not impossible, for them to actually become their full selves. I think that 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 should be a part of the American dream. Um, To look at some of the environmental conditions that people are born into and that people experience from a very early age that, that burden them, that keep them down to the point where they're not able to be who they want to be. And for all the people who may also be listening who would say, we can't do that. I certainly believe that we can, but for the people who say we can't set up those social systems, despite the fact that only 50 years ago did we reach the moon and now we continue to do amazing things, how do we make people believe that it is possible to work toward that better tomorrow? So I also have my doubts about whether or not systemically this can happen, but I would say we don't need the system to accomplish change. There's been people creating changes without systems since the beginning of time. So if our system is not supporting people in in living in safer, healthier conditions, then we need to be the ones who do it outside of the system. Um, We don't, our voices have power, our advocacy is important, and our advocacy and our voices don't always have to be connected to a governmental system or organization in order for change to happen. We can also be that change. Absolutely. And I think that one of the ways that people can operate outside of the systems um, is nonprofits. Again, that's not that that doesn't still operate within the system, but it's outside the normal social scheme of a for-profit corporation being the only thing that can. And so to bring this up uh, now that it's a part of the conversation, you and I know each other from a nonprofit, the Campaign for Trauma-Informed Policy and Practice. Um, would you mind telling us why that's so important to you, how you got involved with that, um, and then, you know, kind of just elaborate on the work that CTIP is doing? Sure. So I became involved, I believe, almost two years ago. Um, Sandy Bloom asked me to be a part of CTIP's initiative I think it's really important because it represents collective advocacy. So many of us are doing advocacy work um, as clinicians, as researchers, as professors, um, as community leaders, but we're operating in silos. I don't know what it is about (laughs) not only just academia, but our professions operate in silos. And so many of us are doing similar work and we have no clue 
what the other person is doing. Right. Um, and I think that the work of CTIP is really essential because it represents people saying, you know what? I'm not going to be territorial about what it means to be trauma informed. I'm going to join together with other people who are also doing incredibly powerful things to support the community, to support trauma survivors. And let's come together and advocate. I think that breaking down the silos and in trauma informed care is so important. And I think that CTIP is doing an excellent job of garnering the support of a lot of different community partners, doing a lot of different diverse work with different communities. And we're not actually going to be able to have the the level of effectiveness that we want as it relates to trauma-informed policy and practice unless we are able to collectively integrate. Um, same thing that we're trying to do with, with trauma survivors. Isn't that funny? So... <laughs> When we're working with individual trauma survivors, um, fragmentation is one of the main symptoms and uh, we need to support people in achieving integration. But yet our systems on a systemic level, we're not integrated, we're siloed. So I think that CTIP is even um, supporting the trauma treatment community and being more integrated and saying we don't have to be siloed, we shouldn't be fragmented. We should be coming together in an integrated way to address these issues together. In a short amount of time, only two years, how has being de-siloed at least a little bit improved your practice? I think understanding what other people are doing. Um, so I'm thinking about I'm thinking about the work of CTIP, and then I'm also thinking about just the meetings that I set up with people. I hear about something really interesting that another professional is doing and I send them, them an email and say, hey, can we meet together? It sounds like we're doing similar work. It's really, uh, it's really exciting. It's also a little concerning that we're doing similar work, we're using different language, but we're not talking to each other. And it's rare for us to talk to one another. I think that CTIP can help to normalize that so that it's not just individuals, you know, randomly bumping into one another. Oh, you do this trauma work? Cool. Me too. Oh, you're called a music therapist. I'm called an LCSW. Maybe we should collaborate. Um, so it kind of takes that like micro, micro interaction and makes it, um, it takes it to another level. That makes total sense. Um, what are some of the obstacles in dealing with people? This question just came to my mind, but when you start to get with people with lots of letters after their names and lots of degrees, there's some sort of an exceptionalism. You were talking about in academia. I think that it's kind of a natural process for any business um, or industry or line of career or whatever. Um, what are some of the barriers in actually reaching the people that we need to reach to make the systemic changes or outside of the system, make the individual changes to go outside the system, but on a grand enough scale to actually have it be impactful, again, on that large scale? I think one of the barriers is fear. Um, there's a lot of fear and mistrust between disciplines. Um, I think part of it is because we don't know what the other discipline is doing when you don't know what the other person is doing you don't have a relationship with that other system um, it can breed fear and suspicion I think another part of the fear is fear that our discipline won't be needed anymore um, and each of us 
each discipline is very proud about what it brings to the table. And I think that there may be fear that if we collaborate with other systems, that we may lose our own individual identity. I think that that's, in terms of how I see the broader structural changes that need to go on for us to actually create a trauma-sensitive society and culture, the loss of identities is a real and serious thing. Um, you know, and then in discussing trauma, it, it, it hurts. And the pain and the fear of pain is a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, as, you know, I just hope that we continue to find ways to enlighten people through the vulnerable conversations. Because mm-hmm. it is through that vulnerability where you're willing to sit across the table from somebody or right next to somebody and speak with them and just be honest Mm -hmm. and be willing to disagree or agree or Mm -hmm. pass no judgment at all. Um, That doesn't seem to be done enough. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, hopefully CTIP can start to regulate or circulate those kinds of conversations Mm -hmm. and get that sort of process going. Um, Do you have a vision for what CTIP would look like in like Let's say five years. So CTIP started in 2016. So it's only been around for three years. Bouncing around on you, sorry. But we, uh, so CTIP's only been around since 2016. So when, and the growth has been pretty remarkable to be only three years old and getting uh, a distinguished service award from the APA. Right. Pretty remarkable. So what does the work look like in five years? What would you like to see the organization blossom into? I would love to see CTIP continue to grow. Right now we are a group of volunteers. All of us are doing our own work as it relates to trauma-informed policy and practices. A lot of us are involved in many different initiatives, but we take the time to volunteer to be able to um, to promote this work and to continue to support CTIP in growing. I think that funding is a really important part of that. So um, thus far, we have been able to operate with very minimal funding. But in order for us to really have the, in order for us to take our ideas and our mission to scale, that would really support us as well. I would really like for us to also be the go-to organization nationally um, to be able to set standards and to be able to um, provide guidance on a macro level to organizations and also to individuals who are seeking to understand and implement trauma-informed policies and practices. And then if we do get to that level, then you can also serve as a coordinating body to kind of remove those silos like you were talking about earlier. Absolutely. That's really well said. Um, So I think that that's enough for CTIP. I I so thoroughly appreciate your time. Sure. Um, If I can steal a little bit more, the one piece that I don't think we discussed enough but you brought up and then I just went to other questions is the part about the specific obstacles that face both in my experience it's people within the inner city and then also people in the deep rural areas of the country different circumstances but both there's there's some somewhat similar adversities that people face in terms of food insecurity in terms of poverty and the various effects of that uh, what what are some of the obstacles that inner city or rural area, I know that you have more experience in the inner city, I just didn't mm-hmm. want to exclude anybody, mm-hmm. where? 
So I don't have much experience um, working with traumatized populations in rural areas. But what I will say is that trauma does not discriminate. Trauma does not care um, about your race, about your gender, about um, your religious affiliations, about your age. So trauma impacts people of all different um, all different identities. And that's really important to remember. It's unfortunate, but it is a common tie that connects us as human beings is this experience of trauma. Some of the obstacles that I face in working with urban youth are systemic. So uh, there are so many systemic barriers relating to funding, relating to programs being shut down, relating to... um, Places not really understanding the value and the importance of the work. Another obstacle is many of the communities that I've worked in are experiencing multiple layers of trauma. So there's not only interpersonal trauma that they're battling and facing. Um, There's family trauma. There's intergenerational trauma. There uh, is systemic oppression. So there are all these different layers of trauma and sometimes it makes it difficult when people are trying to survive. It's sometimes it's difficult for them to have the time and the space to be able to process what has happened because they're in survival mode constantly. And many of the urban youth that I work with, their communities are constantly in survival mode. Um, And there's all these different competing needs that they're trying to have met. And when you're in this constant state of trauma on all these different levels, sometimes it's difficult to say, you know what, I need to make therapy a priority or my story is really important. I need to tell my narrative. Um, So I I think that's one of the biggest barriers. As so I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I taught in an inner city public high school for a year. That was my first job out of college. How How do we get people to tell their story who don't necessarily feel comfortable doing so? Well, first off, I would say if somebody is not ready to tell their story, don't make them. Great advice. Um, Sometimes we think that the only way that people can heal is tell your story, tell what happened, say it again. Um, I don't believe that. I believe that people avoid painful narratives and it's normal. When something hurts, we don't want someone to touch it. So we should go into trauma work understanding that there are some things that people do not want to touch and it's okay. And maybe one day they will feel safe enough to to process those things that happen, but we can't bulldoze over people's avoidance. But then there are also those people who want to tell their narrative, but they're afraid. And I think it's really important in those situations to give people as much mastery and control over their narrative as possible so that they can feel empowered in their narrative process so they know that it's not my narrative. Um, It's not your narrative. It's not um, their community leader's narrative or their parents' narrative. It's their narrative. And I think that takes some of the anxiety away um, for people. So often treatment or interventions are seen as something that is done to you. So I'm going to conduct X, Y, and Z on you. And I think that 
feeds into the fear that trauma survivors experience because they've already had things that were done to them. They've already had experiences over which they had no control, no say, no voice. And for those who are who want to tell their narrative but are afraid, um, it's really helpful for them to know that, no, this is your story. You have control over your narrative. It's not mine. It's yours. I, I just want to echo the part because as someone who has certainly done this in the past, pushing people who are hurting is not the right way to deal with people who are hurting. No. Uh, and I feel like our system is so many of our systems are the worst at it where it's do this as quickly as possible. Mm. You need recovery. Go for four weeks. Come back. Go mm -hmm. back to work. That's not how people work. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to move past where we're at now, we need to have a better understanding of people. Mm -hmm. As someone, I, I think that we need to have many more people starting to go into and study what you've studied and actually understanding people. If So something that you just mentioned kind of leads me back to the last question you asked, which is what are what are the barriers and work with with urban traumatized mm -hmm. communities, another one of those barriers is time. Another barrier is pressure from these outside forces who say like, are you done yet? Are you finished? Is the person healed? Um, which, <laughs> what is healing? How long does healing take? Right. How do you quantify healing? Um, what if somebody is not ready in 10 sessions, but they're ready at the 11th, but there's no funding for the 11th session. It's it's a sad reality that we can't find that funding when we all know that it exists in so many locations. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'll use that as a point to shout out uh, CTIP once more and other worthy organizations, some nonprofit, some otherwise, who need support in order to bring valuable services to people in need to move communities or all of society, which is truly just made up by communities, which is just made up by people. Mm -hmm. And so if we actually start to invest in people and organizations that invest back in people and, you know, ju just to call out CTIP and other worthwhile organizations where if you're listening right now and you have the ability to donate a little bit or a lot of it, definitely feel free to do so. Um, I, I do think that we're starting to wrap up, but I want to open up the floor for anything that I either didn't ask or you didn't get the chance to say. Um, hmm. Feel free to take your time on that. Um, I guess one of the things that I wanted to mention, um, one of the questions was, what is my greatest hope in, in this work? Mm -hmm. And my greatest hope going forward in developing trauma-informed practices across systems is that we support people in focusing on their strength as much as we support people in looking at their trauma. That we don't view trauma-informed practice as focus on all the bad things that happen to you, but that we support people in Looking at, looking at the strengths and the abilities that allowed them to bounce back again. Something that I continually say is that wherever there are stories of trauma, there are always stories of resilience and strength. There's always stories of creativity. And 
My hope is that we're able to highlight those stories with the same fervor that we highlight stories of how people hurt other people. I think that that's so beautifully said. So before I close up, where can people go to learn more about stories? Well, you can check out our website. It's www.stories with a Z, guide, G-U-I-D-E dot com. We're also on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I don't use the Twitter as much. Hopefully that will change soon. <laughs> you have to you have to limit your characters in Twitter. That bugs Didn't me. they open it up for like 280? I don't, did they? I don't know. I've, I've never been a big fan of Twitter either. <laughs> I just thought that it was like Facebook posts that right. you couldn't put pictures in. <laughs> um, so I've never been the biggest fan. But while you're checking out Stories Guide, again, with a Z, um... Also, check out the work that Megan did for CTIP and the social media, the website, new website, and all the stuff that's going on there. So, again, Stories Guide and CTIP, storiesguide.com, ctip.org. We just want to bring up one more time because it's new and exciting that uh, CTIP was just awarded uh, the Distinguished Service Award from the American Psychological Association. And we are hoping that that's kind of the launching point to have those broader efforts. Mm -hmm. Um, Sandy Bloom just wrote a blog post. If you go to the website um, or the Facebook page, you can read it there. Um, Thank you all for listening. We will continue to press on, and I look forward to talking with you all again soon.